that's when you, when you All right, we, we want to welcome you this morning to Plum Creek Chapel and encourage everybody to come on in and find a seat. We are continuing our study of the second coming in the kingdom. And uh, those of you that are live streaming with us, all that noise you hear in the background is all the unsanctified rebellious people that are still <laughs> talking and not able to follow directions. So, now we're looking forward to this morning. Uh, this is actually going to be part three of our focused look at the second coming and the kingdom. But of course, overall, we've been working our way through all of the biblical end times material. And so this is actually our 45th uh, session in this uh, study. Not sure how much longer we have to go. We're going to kind of get through the second coming, talk a lot about the kingdom, the millennial phase of the kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and then we'll kind of maybe tie it all uh, together here in the next few weeks. But we did get some more of the What Lies Ahead books uh, in. They're back at the back on the table. If you're here in the room and don't have one, um, then you certainly want to pick one of those up and add it to your library. And it's also kind of a good uh, cor uh, charted, charting the course that we're going through, kind of chapter by chapter. Uh, our Tuesday podcast this week was on Bible prophecy, current events, and evangelism. Really, really good discussion. Um, it was actually a listener recommendation, sent some questions in about how to use current events and all this craziness in the world and the subject of Bible prophecy uh, as a starting point to tell people about the gospel. So really encourage you to go back and listen to that. And we're going to continue with that theme this Tuesday, uh, giving some more uh, ideas about that. Uh, don't forget Wednesday nights. I know we uh, weren't able to meet in person this last Wednesday because of the winter storm, but we did live stream it. So if you weren't able to live stream, uh, you can watch the video. Uh, that's still posted at PlumCreekChapel.org or, of course, at NotByWorks.org. Just click on Midweek Service for all of those videos. We've had 11 now in this current series. But we will resume meeting in person, Lord willing, this Wednesday and continue to talk about figures of speech. We've got a little group exercise we're going to do to kind of uh, reiterate some of the principles that we talked about, about uh, figures of speech. So, with that, let's uh, pick up with our study of the second, king, second coming and the kingdom. And we've been going through seven reasons Christ had to return. In other words, seven reasons for the second coming. Now, put it in uh, perspective from a couple of different passages. In Daniel, we read about the 490-year plan. And uh, the first 483 years of that, as we've said, are already fulfilled to the day. But the final seven years awaits future fulfillment. And as indicated by the red question mark, we don't know exactly when that will start because it won't start until after the rapture. And we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. The rapture is imminent. Uh, so we've spent uh, 16 weeks or so detailing the type of things that will happen during that seven-year period. And uh, so the yellow arrow points now to where we are chronologically in this study. We're at the end of the seven years. Christ comes back and establishes the kingdom. If we zoom out, uh, we look at the present church age on the far left. The rapture will be a, what puts an end to the church age and starts God's end times program. So the rapture, as we've said many times, is the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward. It will start uh, the series of events that will happen uh, in order after that. Uh, after the rapture, we see a short period of unspecified length uh, prior to 
when the Antichrist signs the peace treaty, but it's that signing of the peace treaty in Daniel 9.27 that actually begins the clock ticking on the seven-year period. And then, as you see highlighted in yellow, at the end of the seven years, Christ comes back and uh, will inaugurate uh, the kingdom. From the perspective of the book of Revelation, <clears throat> the first uh, four chapters set the stage for the end times. Uh, then in chapter 6 to 18, we get some of the greatest detailed information that we have anywhere in the Bible about uh, the Antichrist and about his reign of terror and that seven-year period. But then you get to chapter 19, as indicated in the yellow highlighting there, and Christ comes back <clears throat> and inaugurates uh, the kingdom. So, so far, we've looked at uh, five uh, reasons for Christ's second coming. He comes back to judge the Antichrist. He comes back to regather and restore Israel into the Holy Land, as promised many times in the Old Testament. He comes back to judge and punish faithless Israel one final time. So during the seven-year tribulation, the nation of Israel and individual Jews will have one final opportunity to believe the gospel and welcome their king when he comes back. Those who do not, they will be sent to everlasting punishment. Similarly, Christ comes back to judge the Gentile nations, number four. And that's obviously referring to non-Jews, but they too will have an opportunity during the tribulation to be saved, those that weren't already saved prior to the tribulation. Uh, of course, if there anybody saved today is part of the church age, the bride of Christ, and we're uh, caught up to meet the Lord in the air at, that, uh, at the rapture. But during the tribulation period, there will be a great evangelistic harvest. Many people, Jews and Gentiles alike, will come to faith, and uh, Christ comes back to judge those Gentile nations. It's what we looked at last week in the Olivet Discourse, the sheep and the goats judgment. So to the sheep, those who were saved during the tribulation and survived, lived to tell about it, weren't martyred, uh, he's going to say, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the goats, those who rejected the gospel, he's going to say, Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, and we talked about, spent quite a bit of time talking about the important point that at the return of Christ, so if we go back here to our uh, big picture chart, at when the kingdom starts, when Christ comes back, there will be only believers on earth. Because all Gentile believers, the goats, have been cast into the lake of fire, or the everlasting fire, uh, and all unbelieving Jews, same thing. So the only people left on earth initially, when the kingdom starts, are believers. But they will, those that are in their physical bodies that survived the tribulation, they will, over a thousand years, it's a long time, right? So they will repopulate the earth as they have children. And those children, some of them will grow up and get saved, some of them will not. So as you move through time into this thousand years of the kingdom, uh, you find eventually there's a, quite a few unbelievers that are on earth. And it's those unbelievers that Satan will rally together at the end of the thousand years for one final battle when he's left out of prison to try one final desperate time to overcome God and Christ and take over the world. So it's important to know that at the start of the kingdom, it will be the first time since Noah's family got off the ark that only believers are on the earth. And uh, the Bible makes a lot of comparisons between the judgment of the world in Noah's day and the ultimate judgment when he 
judges the world at the end of the age. So, uh, but this will be the first time that only believers on earth. Up until then, uh, the, the Bible uh, teaches the remnant principle. So, God is always moving and active and alive on earth, but it is, uh, generally speaking, in the minority. In other words, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, and we know this from Scripture as well, to look around the world and say that the majority of people on earth today are not believers. Would you agree with that? All right. So that's the remnant principle. Um, and, and the same thing will be true during the tribulation. The vast majority of the world will be deceived by the Antichrist working at the behest of Satan and will take the mark of the beast. But at the same time, there will be many, 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 uh, in fact, a large number, according to Revelation 7, who reject the Antichrist's message. They're not deceived. They believe the gospel, and they get saved. Of those who get saved, many will be martyred for their faith. So they'll participate in the kingdom like we will in glorified bodies, not in their flesh and blood body. But many will survive by hiding out, and they're the ones that will inhabit the kingdom in their mortal bodies. So at the time Christ returns, only believers will be on earth. Now contrast that if you slip over to the far left on this chart with the rapture. It's just the opposite. Seconds after the rapture, only unbelievers will be on earth. Now think about that for a second. I mean, that's a pretty scary thought. You think it's bad now. At least now we have the restraining influence of the church, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. And I talk about this in my video, One Minute After the Rapture, um, as one of the characteristics of things that will happen right after the rapture. Utter chaos. No restraining influence. No believer who's the Holy Spirit's conscience within him can convict him or her of, hey, don't do this, do that. Right now, again, as bad as it is, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. This devil is the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. He's, he's working out his great last day's deception right now. The spirit of the Antichrist is already at work among us, the Bible says. But we do have believers who uh, can stand up for what's right, put a stop to certain things. Uh, in the last couple of years, as we've been experiencing a worldwide, uh, I believe, manufactured pandemic and the medical tyranny that goes with that, there have been uh, believers in many parts of the world leading the charge to try to put a stop to it. And in some cases, they've been successful, right? Um, you know, maybe some of the uh, truckers in Ottawa are believers. I would guess they are, you know, just law of large numbers. If let's just pick a number, let's say 20%, I'm just picking that number of people on earth today are believers, then if you extrapolate among the large group protesting in Ottawa, it probably means 20% of them are uh, believers. So uh, we do see a restraining influence, but the point is at the rapture, seconds after the rapture, only unbelievers on earth in their physical bodies. At the second coming, seconds after Christ returns, only, and I'm using seconds sort of metaphorically, especially with the second coming because we don't know you know, how long it's going to take to do these judgments and, you know, all of that. There's Battle of Armageddon and those things. The rapture happens in the twinkling of an eye. So we can say one second after the rapture, only unbelievers on earth. But in conjunction with the second coming, after Christ returns, uh, it'll only be believers, so just the opposite. So, uh, and then the last thing we looked at uh, in this uh, study so far is uh, that Christ comes back to resurrect Old Testament 
and tribulation believers. Uh, remember, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the importance of the resurrection. It is a foundational part of humanity. Um, uh, and, and like Christ's resurrection, every other human being will be resurrected too, some to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. Now, that doesn't mean that we, when our bodies go to the grave that we go with them. This body is just a tent. The resurrection deals with only the physical aspect of the body. The real you, the real me, never ceases consciousness, and the moment we die, we either go to be in the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, or we go in eternal torment, as we read about in Luke 16, uh, if you're an unbeliever. Uh, of course, you don't have to wait and wonder to find out. You can know today, right now, where you're going to spend eternity. Uh, if you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, you're born again. Jesus says, in that moment of faith, uh, John 8, 24, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Right? So, uh, but the point is, at death, every human being on planet Earth goes one place or the other, but the physical body goes to the grave or is cremated or whatever happens to our physical body. And so that body will be resurrected throughout all time, going all the way back to you know, Abraham and uh, Noah. All believers prior to uh, the church age uh, are going to be resurrected in their physical bodies at the second coming, as you see on the chart here. Uh, of course, believers, which is a unique body, a, a unique uh, program of God, a mystery that the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, our resurrection occurs at the rapture. It's the reason Paul said the dead in Christ, in Christ meaning believers, will rise first, their bodies, and be caught up together with us, those who are alive and remain, to meet the Lord uh, in the air. So for some people on earth, uh, who are uh, who happen to be the group that's alive during the rapture? Uh, we won't have to experience physical death. So, if the rapture were to happen today, and if you're a believer, you won't ever have to experience physical death. You'll go straight from this physical body. It'll be translated. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will be changed. That's a reference to this mortal putting on immortality. Uh, and so, one of two ways that church-age believers will receive their glorified bodies, either at, both of them happen at the rapture. Either having already died, they experience the resurrection of the body and get the glorified body, or having never died, at, but you're here when the rapture happens, then you'll be translated or changed in a second uh, into a glorified body. Make sense? Hope I didn't muddy that up. All right. Let's move on to number six. So this is really what most people think of when they think about the second coming. And notice we've already talked about five important other things that happen in conjunction with the second coming. But he comes back to inaugurate the long-awaited earthly kingdom. Jesus himself uh, put it this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now this goes all the way back to the promise, really ultimately to Abraham, which we're going to talk about in a moment, but specifically the kingdom promise is to David. When in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God promised, Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, in the context there, initially, beginning in verse 12, God is talking about Solomon, 
who will build the temple and reign. But then he expands it out and says, indeed, the, the, the son of David, the seed of David, will reign forever. Well, Solomon clearly didn't reign forever. And, of course, neither did David. And this is a point the New Testament authors make often. So he's talking here about the promise of an eternal throne, temple, and kingdom. Uh, so you see house there highlighted in red, that's the temple. Kingdom, that's the geographic area over, from which he will reign. And you see throne, that's the physical seat that Christ will sit down on. So he's on the throne today, but it's not the Davidic throne. It's not the kingdom throne. It's the thro what we call the throne in waiting. It's the throne at the right hand of God in heaven. And he's waiting for the end times to begin at God's cue, and then he's going to come back, rescue the church in the air, come back later with the church, riding with him on white horses, and inaugurate uh, the second uh, or the kingdom. So that's a key reason for Christ's second coming is to inaugurate the long-awaited earthly kingdom. The Old Testament prophets talk about this a lot. Zechariah 14 says, The Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Uh, you know, the, the unity of Yahweh is a key principle in Scripture. Uh, Trinitarianism, we call that. You contrast that with the pagan religions, and especially we see this today, and we're going to see it in the lead-up to the Antichrist. We see more and more of this pluralistic thinking of multiple religions, multiple gods, multiple ways to get to heaven. Can't we all just come together? But uh, the Bible teaches there's one creator, God, and one king, his eternal son Jesus, who will take the throne. And so notice he will be king over all the earth. So we are headed towards a one-world government, one way or the other. We know, biblically, here's what we know with absolute certainty. With absolute certainty, there will be at least a seven-year one-world government, religious, political, geographic, uh, financial, economic, all of that, over which the Antichrist will reign in a, in a horrific uh, tyranny. We know that for sure. And we know, of course, for sure that after he is defeated at the Battle of Armageddon, we will have a perpetual one-world government and one-world system with the king of kings ruling with a rod of iron in perfect peace and justice. Those two things are certain. What the Bible is silent about is when the evil one-world system will actually begin. It never says that the Antichrist inaugurates an evil satanic one-world system for seven years. He just takes the helm of it for seven years. So it's conceivable that the one-world system could already be in place before the rapture. And then after the rapture, the Antichrist kind of rises to the fore, as we've talked about, and becomes the leader of it. We don't know. And uh, most Bible teachers that, that believe the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context have tended to assume, and myself included for years, that this satanic kingdom is only going to last seven years and only relates to the Antichrist reign. But the more I've studied it and, and looked at the facts of Scripture, we can't say that with certainty. Scripture does not say it begins with the Antichrist. It says the Antichrist 
leads it. So, uh, for that reason, we need to recognize that if the Lord tarries is coming and we continue to go the way we're going right now, uh, we are very likely going to have to learn to function without national sovereignty, without nation states, but under a one world system. Uh, and we talked about this in the first video of the What in the World is Going On series that we did, I think it was over the summer on Wednesday nights. And it'd be worth going back to watch that. In fact, you should watch all of those if you haven't. But the first one, I spent a great deal of time making the biblical case for God's plan of the ages, how it, how it, was, it went from a, you know, a theocracy, a one-world system with God leading it, and then after the flood into uh, you know, nation-states and nationalism where you had individual nations throughout the world. And that's the age in which we're living now. That's God's divine design. Uh, God, do, God does not, in his uh, uh, desire, if you will, his will, does not want to return to a one-world system until Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, takes the throne. Now, he tells us prophetically that we're going to experience a satanic version of that, an anti-Christ version of that, um, but that's not his design. So right now, when you hear all this talk of globalism and, you know, global this and global that and global agreements and you know all these different meetings like the G4 and the G12 and the, I don't know what they're all called anymore, but uh, those are not God's plan. Anything that attacks national sovereignty is not God's plan today. It's evil. Uh, and especially in America where we are still the one nation that is standing in the way of the Luciferians ushering in their one world system. Uh, and it's because of our Christian heritage. It's because of our uh, constitutional republic and the freedoms that in theory we are granted. But we see those being chipped away at. In fact, it's not really even chipped away. They're just being lopped off in major ways, uh, especially in the last two years with freedom of speech, censorship, those types of things. Um, so, but they know, and we talked about this in my Spirit of the Antichrist series, that they can't usher in the one world system until America is out of the way. So, it's interesting when you look at the history of America, you know, the, the, for, for the original people that came over here in the 16th century, were, or in 17th century, were uh, Christians seeking religious freedom, the Puritans, Plymouth Rock, right? But within less than 200 years, the New Worlders, at the behest of the Luciferians, came over to establish a beachhead for the New World Order. I don't know if you realize that that's where the phrase New World came from, okay? The New World Order. They wanted to establish it here. So the Freemasons came over. They established the Illuminati with Paul uh, Weishaupt. Uh, in 1776, not long after July 4th, when this country was founded. And this was intended that the fingerprints of Satan are all over the founding of this country. The fingerprints of God are too, uh, no doubt. So, But they thought this was going to be their beachhead, their place to really expedite and usher in this one world, satanically inspired and led system. They underestimated Number one, the power of freedom, and number two, the power of the Holy Spirit through these Christians. And so uh, it, it really got out of their control very quickly. 
And so the United States, now 240, what, six years old, is, has done more in its history to further the cause of Christianity than any nation in history. And, um, but about 150 years ago, the Luciferians really put in place a plan to put a stop to that. They, it kinda, we kind of got out of their control. They, they lost their grip. It's, oh, it's, you know, what have we created? You know, they thought they were creating a nation that was going to help usher in the, the one world satanic system. Uh, but it didn't. And so now they've got to destroy that. And so their credo, the Luciferian elite that are ruling the, the world and conspiring with Satan to take it over, is order out of chaos. And in other words, they've got to, uh, you know, tear us down so they can rebuild it and, and basically try again. You know, they tried once, and they again, they vastly underestimated ultimately God, but uh, in, in humanly speaking, underestimated the, the power of freedom and the power of Christianity uh, and the power of Christ working in and through the church. And our, our country's never been perfect. There are no perfect countries. Um, and, and even in the early days, there were problems and there were even the early Christians didn't connect all the theological dots correctly and they weren't always preaching a clear gospel and things like that. But the Spirit of God used it to build a great foundation. And so we should always be proud of our heritage as a, as a nation and recognize the fingerprints of God in our history. But it is very naive not to also recognize the fingerprints of Satan and recognize how the Luciferians have been trying to use this country from its inception. Uh, you go back and look at even the way Washington, D.C. architecturally is laid out. All kinds of satanic symbolism there, and that was by design. Uh, you look at what's a lot of the founding fathers, who often we put up on a pedestal as if they were mighty men of God, godly, God-fearing Christians. Most of them were not. And all you have to do is read their writings and see what they had to say about God and about the Bible. And even though they were patriots in some cases, they were wanting to create a freedom that was a, a nation that was free from tyranny and free from control of uh, you know the, the monarchy they had an ulterior agenda uh, some more than others some were sort of co-opted into it uh, some were unwitting pawns in the game but the point is Satan has intended to use this continent for his end and his means all along and but uh, as bad as things are today, uh, it, there is still a powerful Christian element and spirit-led element that is standing in their way. And it just shows you how powerful the Holy Spirit is. God, the Holy Spirit. And so what's their solution? They've got to destroy America before they can usher in the one world system. Now, we don't, you know, as I've said many times in this study, in terms of the timetable, there are two things, two primary things that affect the timetable of when all of this is going to happen. One, first and foremost, is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. It's His plan of the ages. And at some point, He's going to say, okay, enough's enough. Uh, we know from 2 Peter 3, 9 that God is not willing that any should perish. So He's waiting patiently for more and more people to get saved. But at some point, enough's enough. And so He sort of takes... You know, sets this you know, allows Satan to, to to move into the next phase. But the other reason that the the timetable is not 
you know, automatic, and the reason the Luciferians haven't ushered it in yet is because the Luciferian conspiracy itself is chaotic, disorganized. It's not Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. So there are competing agendas. There are internal skirmishes and fights, and so you know he's dealing with that. But aside from those two influences, God's sovereignty and the ineptitude of the Luciferians themselves, if the Lord tarries his coming, we could see a one-world government any day. And we could also see the collapse of America, which will have to happen before that. Um, so whether the collapse of America happens before the rapture or after the rapture, who knows? But uh, it, that, that's their plan. We've seen it in their own writings. I've given many, many quotes uh, about that. And uh, there's no doubt that that Right now, this is their primary theater in this spiritual war. Yeah. So, I'm back up a little bit. I understand the tribulation, the rapture of the tribulation. Understand the thousand-year period. At the end of the thousand-year period, there will be unbelievers on the earth. Yes. Right? What happens then? Because God is... I think I remember the earth is destroyed and there is a really new king. That's it. Okay. Yeah, so the question is, what happens at the end of the thousand-year portion of the kingdom? And will there be unbelievers on the earth? But then, yes, as we've said. And, uh, and so, obviously, we're going to get to that. But let me just summarize it for you. So, when Christ comes back and inaugurates his kingdom, Satan is put in prison for a thousand years. Doesn't mean he has no influence, but he's, his influence is vastly diminished. Okay? And the analogy I like to use is a mob boss. You know, mob bosses might be found guilty and put in prison, but in many cases they're still calling the shots and doing stuff from prison, right? So Satan, but his influence on planet Earth is vastly uh, limited at, for a thousand years. And Christ is ruling. It's an unprecedented peace and righteousness and justice. There's no inequities for a thousand years. Then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is let free from prison for one final battle. He gathers together all the unbelievers for what the Bible calls another battle of Gog and Magog, not the same one in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that happened before the tribulation, but another massive global battle. And that time, it's not one with military weapons of war and all that. It's just with a word, the Bible says, Christ is destroyed. And at that time, according to 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21, the old earth is utterly destroyed. All of creation is utterly destroyed and recreated in, uh, in sinless perfection. So I had someone email me this week and say that they had heard some other teacher who's a false teacher say that you know, the Bible promises after Noah that he'll never destroy the earth again. Not true. What does the Bible promise? He'll never destroy the earth again by water. So if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, you find these words, and we've talked a lot about 2 Peter 3. Uh, beginning in verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Remember, the last days is the present age. Walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they are. In other words, Christ hasn't come back like he promised he would. Um, but notice he says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition on ungodly men. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. So that's God's answer to the what's taking so long question. <laughs> what's taking so long is God wants more people to be saved. And from God's timeless perspective, He doesn't think of it linearly like we do. You know, we think, wow, it's taken forever, you know. And, and, I, and, and the older we get, if you're a Bible-believing, you know, passionate Christian, and I'm seeing this in my own life, uh, not that I'm old, you know, I'm not near as old as some of you. I mean, I'm, I'm just a little chick. But, but uh, the older I get, I am seeing this. And I especially see it in, you know, older people that I've met and talked to and good friends through the years. The more we yearn and long for the rapture. I had one fella in Illinois, dear friend, uh, was a part of our prophecy uh, club that we had there, would meet twice a month. We'd have 120 people coming from 20 different churches and uh, he, he would, every time we would get together for coffee, I had a regular meeting with him, he, tears would well, well up in his eyes, and he would say, man, I just wish it would be today. You know, I don't like to see my wife suffering. She's with the Lord now, by the way. Um, I don't like to, I'm getting, I'm, I'm not feeling well, and I'm getting all this, oh, man, I wish it would be today. And I can understand that now. You know, as a young man, you know, you think, wow, I got a lot of living left to do, a lot of plans, a lot of goals, right? I mean, yeah, it'd be awesome to have the rapture. It'd be pretty cool. But, you know, it's not like it's something that I am going to be disappointed if it doesn't happen. I'm at the point where I'm disappointed if it doesn't happen now. And so that's all Peter meant by a thousand days in a day. People completely rip that out of context and take it and bring it back into Genesis and say, see, the earth wasn't created in six days. It was created over millions of years and just utter nonsense. But then he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. I mean, it couldn't be more clear. So at that point, now we're at that dividing line between the thousand-year millennial phase and the new heavens and the new earth. God destroys the old heaven and then in the old earth and then you go to revelation 21 and he says now i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away so god recreates everything uh, in sinless perfection just as it was before the curse of sin came upon the earth yeah so at that moment in time will there be another rapture I mean, what, what happens, we understand what happens to the non-believers, what happens to the believers? So, as I suggest in this chart, and I think I referenced a few weeks ago 
an art or lengthy journal article that I wrote, very extensive research called Death in the Millennium that addresses a lot of things about the millennium and death, but also this question you're asking. But as I suggest here, because these believers at the end of the millennium won't die, they must, we, and we don't, there's no verse that says this in so many words, but it's a theological inference because we know flesh and blood cannot inherit the ultimate kingdom. And we, so, so we know they must be translated in some fashion at the end of the millennium. So the answer sort of is, is a yes. It's not strictly speaking a rapture because they're not caught up, but at the rapture, that's when believers of the church age get our glorified bodies. It's called the tr a translation. And we're going to see a translation at the end of the millennium too. But again, I, I can't, all I can do is make the theological point by comparing Scripture to Scripture. I can't say, thus saith the Lord in this verse. So, Yes? Could you just look at it as a grand reboot? Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah you're getting rid of every corruption that's in your active memory and coming up clean all the programs are still there yeah so <laughs> it's a from the earth's perspective the comment was it's a, a grand reboot i mean that's a good analogy especially if by grand reboot you mean this computer is so frustrating to me i'm going to just take it and smash it with a hammer and destroy it and throw it in the fire and it ceases to exist and go buy a new one that would be the analogy of scripture because it's not a renovation of the earth. That's not a reboot. <laughs> well, that's God's version of a reboot, right? Yeah. That's a new uh, boot. That's a new boot, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the fact is, and this is an important principle because a lot of people uh, get this wrong. Uh, they say that the new heavens and earth is a renovation, that God's going to fix it. He doesn't fix it, he destroys it, as we just read. Because the curse of sin is all permeating through uh, the whole earth. I mean, do you see the curse of sin manifested in any of the soils and stuff? Of course. Of course you do, right? You see it manifested in the air? Mm -hmm. Just do an air test and find out what they're doing with all the geoengineering. Do we see it manifested in water? You know, God's not going to take the oceans and pour them through some Berkey filter and make them clean again. He's going to destroy them and start and recreate the earth in sinless perfection. I think I showed last week I'm having a deja vu here because I was wondering if I had this chart and I was delighted to see that I did. Um, you know, this is another way to articulate the God's purpose in human history that He's got to redeem all of creation. And the way He redeems us, by the way, is He doesn't fix our old nature, He gives us an entirely new one, right? And the old nature is sold under sin, and that's why the Bible calls it the flesh. The sarks is the Greek word. And when the flesh is destroyed, because it's made of atoms, it's made of the part of the created universe, the new us is, you know, is, lives on forever, and it's in sinless perfection. So while we're on this earth, we have this struggle between what Paul calls the flesh and the spirit. You know, the flesh you know, wants to sin and wants to do all, but once we enter into the new heavens and earth, the flesh is gone. So only the new man is, is available. So one of the problems where this relates to the daily life and, Christian, and, and being a Christian and being saved and stuff is people who think that somehow you can earn your salvation 
Basically, they're talking about, I'm going to renovate this old body, uh, this old person sold under sin. I'm just going to put a few band-aids on it, try harder, do better, you know, get a new limb hair, get a new facelift here, that kind of stuff, and I'll be okay. God says, absolutely not. There's nothing you can do to fix the old man. He's history. You need a new man. That's why Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So similar language to what we see about the, all the rest of the created universe. It's going to pass away. Yeah. So I'm going to take you back a couple uh, thoughts ago. When you, I felt like you were giving us a very appropriate warning or admonition. Like, we're going to have to figure this out if the new world order happens before the rapture we're still around. Um, do you feel that there are things that are different now than in the early Puritan America, where freedom and the Holy Spirit were the things that um, afforded the Luciferian agenda at that time. Do you think that there is enough of that now where we could actually afford it, or do you think that things are happening in a way that hmm, probably not? So great question. I'll try to summarize it for those that are live streaming or watching the video later or listening to the podcast. So you started by saying it sounded like earlier when we were talking about the history of America and the Luciferians' attempt to usher in the New World Order and destroy America, that early on, you, that it sounded like I was kind of giving a warning of what we, we need to be prepared in case we find ourselves living in the one world system. Yeah, I think definitely we do need to be prepared for that. Um, and then the question really is that you're asking, what's different now, if anything, between you know, the way the church is restraining influence now versus when the Puritans came over. So I think a lot's different. We know the biblical principle of 2 Timothy 3.13 is things are getting worse and worse. So um, early on, I think there was less uh, of an influence of evil in the early days of our country, uh, in the very early days. And I think the spirit of the Antichrist wasn't as pervasive and the manifestations weren't as you know, many, pervasive. Um, but over 200 years, we've seen massive manifestations of the Spirit. That's what that video series, which is about to be out in book form, is all about. Spirit of the Antichrist, the gathering cloud of deception. Is that we know from the Bible that the, the Antichrist is coming, but the Spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. And if we see, if we look at the Antichrist's characteristics as described throughout the Bible and we kind of categorize them, and then we overlay that with what's happening in the world today, we see an unmistakable rise in the manifestations of the Antichrist spirit already all around us. So I think that it's far worse today than it was then. Um, I, I think uh, you know early on that's why they kind of had to regroup. So what happened was, you know, they were... Uh, you know, setting in motion their plans. They created even Washington, D.C., uh, uh, their plans for it. And, of course, it came along. The act, a lot of the architecture came along later after what war was it where they burned a lot of the stuff in D.C.? And even the 1812, yeah. So, but still, they were putting in place, even in the early 19th century, their buildings, their satanic temples to be able to rule from here. This was going to be the new world uh, you know, order, headquarters. And then, uh, of course, the uh, influence of Christians and 
uh, so forth kept that from happening. So about 150 years ago, give or take, we're talking, you know, time of 1880s roughly, is when they really regrouped and you see a lot of the Luciferian co-conspirators, and I quote a lot of these in the series and in the book, uh, coming together and saying, we've got to bring down America. And then that's early on in the 20th century, you see things like the start of the privately owned Federal Reserve, 1913, which was a key development in taking away national sovereignty. So people, I think, should know, if you don't, that the Federal Reserve is not federal. It's privately owned by six Luciferian families. So every time you pull out a piece of currency, it says Federal Reserve note. It's a debt instrument. It's not money. And when the Federal Reserve prints the money and gives it to us to spread throughout the public, we're paying interest on every one of those printed pieces of paper. It's a debt instrument. So you had things like that. You had the establishment of compulsory government schooling in 1918. You had um, a lot of other things that happened early on where they said, okay, we're going to have to really focus and, you know, try to tear down this country. You know, you think about in, in the olden days, you know, they read the Bible in school and they prayed in school and they said the Pledge of Allegiance in school and stuff. But it, they quickly tore all of those things down. Abortion. Yeah, or, yeah that came. How eugenics. many abortions happened early in, in the first 50 years of America? Oh, think? tons, yeah. The whole eugenics movement with Margaret Sanger and and uh, all of that, and, and, and they were, that was pervasive in the 20s, 30s and 40s. And then um, you know, Edward Bernays came along and he helped recast all of that because eugenics after World War II, he came along before World War II, but he was still doing his stuff in the 40s. Uh, he came along and nobody liked the term eugenics because they saw what it looked like when you take it to its logical end and you're burning people in ovens. Uh, so that don't look like you or that have a different skin color. So they changed the name eugenics, called it family planning, and, and then eventually it became a Supreme Court issue and they legal, you know, legalized it. But yeah. Congress used to print Bibles. They oh, yeah. every classroom to have one, every hospital, church, you know, whatever. That was their big thing. Yeah, co Congress used to print Bibles. That's a perfect example of the influence of the Holy Spirit in and through the church in our country. It was, there, the fingerprints of God are all over this country. But so are the fingerprints of Satan. And we need to recognize that this is a, this is a key place and now a key time. So I haven't gotten to the, the answer to the crux of your question, which is, you know, is it possible that the church today could rise up and, and put a stop to it and delay the implementation of the New World Order? Absolutely, it's possible. Now, God is in the revival business, and um, you know I think biblically and theologically, there's nothing that precludes that. If you ask me my opinion and speculation, I'm a pessimist in this regard, and I just think that we're, we're too far gone, and I just see the clock ticking, and it just seems like the stage is being set for an, a very soon entrance into the end, end of the plan. I hope I'm wrong. You know, God may decide to delay it another hundred years. We don't know. Yeah. I have a question um, not related to what you're saying now, but talking before kind of on what, what Ken was talking about, about the final kingdom. Yeah. And it pertains to free will. 
You know, when I think about, okay, before God created man, Lucifer obviously had the free will to rebel against him. And during the millennium, when Christ himself is going to be there, and I find this so hard to believe, but but people are going to be able to rebel. Yeah. So are we saying that in the very final kingdom, we won't have free will? So the question is, people have had free will. Obviously, Satan and his angels that fell with him had free will to rebel against God. We've had free will throughout the ages. In the millennium, people, even, even though Christ is on the throne, you said, which is such a good observation, how amazing it will be that some people will still reject the gospel. It's, it's amazing. But your question then was, are we saying that after the new heavens and earth, people won't have free will? Uh, no, we're not saying that because Adam and Eve prior to the fall had free will. So they were created in the image of God, which means they have free will. So the image of God in man means that. And it's because they had free will before the fall that they chose to fall. So, But what we do know from the biblical narrative is that there's no indication that this whole thing's going to start all over again after it's recreated. So that would be utter speculation. Well, I just meant because it says there will be no more weeping, there will be no more... I right. Mean, so if we have free will, yeah. then people are still going to be mean. You know? Well, there's not, there's, it's not mutually exclusive to say that... Isn't free will that, between two natures? Huh, what's that? Free will would be between two natures, but in the new heaven, we wouldn't have the old nature anymore. Well, not exactly, because... The old, the, the old nature, so the question is, isn't free will between two natures? And in the eternal state, we won't have two natures. It's true we won't have two natures in the eternal state, as we talked about, because the flesh is not, can't not inherit the kingdom of God. But I wouldn't describe the free will as a function of two natures, because Adam and Eve didn't have a fallen nature till after they fell. So free will is a function of the image of God in man, the imago Dei. And I don't have that chart in front of me, but in my chart book I have an illustration that shows about 10 or 12 characteristics of God and the corresponding characteristic of humanity. Now, the image of God in man does not mean that we are gods, that we have exactly the same nature. It just means that we have a, an image that God designed that corresponds to the different attributes of God. Yeah? There will be no satanic Right, and there will be no satanic influence because the devil and his angels have been banished to an eternal place of torment. So, uh, so it's not so much about free will as it is, you know, the Bible coming full circle. So go back to Eden, and and that's what it'll be like. Totally, without the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right, and there's no there's no reference anywhere, and that's what I'm saying. It's all speculation. So, so the Bible ends in perfection in other words so all right well we're way over time so we are going to have to stop there i really had hoped to get into number seven but that's good number seven is going to take us a while because we're going to go back and review the abrahamic promise a little bit as part of that but anyway great discussion great questions and we'll take a break we'll come back in here at 10 o'clock i may give you an extra five minutes since we went long uh, live stream will begin at roughly 10:30, give or take five minutes mountain time so if you're live streaming the message Join back in around 10.30 Mountain Time. Thanks. Yeah.